Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. Today, I'd like to continue our series on the Italian city-states. Today, our focus will be on the birthplace of the Renaissance, Florence, the gilded capital of Tuscany. This will be a two-part episode. In this first part, we'll discuss Florence's ancient Roman history up through to the High Middle Ages. In this episode, we'll see how their constant internal conflict hampered their ability to thrive and have peace, at a low point leading them to expel their greatest poet, Dante Alighieri. In our second episode, we'll talk about how the city came together in the wake of the Black Death, how the Medici family came to power, and how their efforts kicked off the Renaissance. Florence is in central Italy, located about 145 miles northwest of Rome. It is in a land of green, rolling hills, inhabited since ancient times. Back then, it was called Fiesole, originally a military base, or Castrum, established by Julius Caesar in 59 BC. It was situated on the summit of a hill for defensive reasons. But, as it eventually became a home for military veterans, they decided to move the town to a lower elevation to become more favorable to travelers and merchants. Its new site was on the only north-south crossing of the Arno River and in a valley connecting the Apennines mountain passes leading to Faenza and Bologna. A nearby river port allowed trade westward to Pisa. It soon became a thriving town, worthy to be numbered among the great cities of the Romans. Indeed, it thrived so much that some would call it the Flowering Colony, in Latin, Florentia, in Old Italian, Fiorenzi. In English, we call it Florence. In the mid-500s, Florence became an object of contention between the Byzantines and the Ostrogoths. Finally, Totila, king of the Ostrogoths, destroyed it. After 250 years of disuse, King Charlemagne rebuilt the city in the year 774. For centuries, the descendants of Charles passed Florence one to another and then to their descendants, the Holy Roman Emperors, the Berengari, and then the German Emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, or HRE. During this time, Florence was overseen by a local ruler called the Margrave, what we'd call a baron. Most of the Margraves neglected their duties and lived days away from Florence in the city of Lida, caring little for Florence. But in the latter half of the 10th century, that changed when a Margrave named Hugh the Great took over. Hugh got the government of Tuscany to begin functioning again and was a great builder. He was also a devout supporter of the church. He decided to move to Florence and make it the capital of Tuscany instead of Lida. While there, Hugh ordered the construction of the Basilica di San Miniato and donated vast swaths of public lands to the monks for the construction of monasteries. These efforts kicked off a spiritual renewal, a golden age of art, and a general sense of renewal in the town. It was during this time that the Florentine devotion to realism in art was solidified. Hugh was so beloved that he even made it into Dante's Divine Comedy, referenced as a soul held in honor in Paradiso. This age of renewal continued throughout the 10th and 11th centuries. Under the rule of Countess Matilda, Florence became the leading city in Tuscany. Matilda was a great supporter of cathedrals and monasteries, having several built. She also built hospitals for pilgrims and the poor in the great Apennine mountain passes. 
To keep Tuscany and Florence safe and prosperous, Matilda had to navigate the expanding rift between the spiritual power of the region, the Pope, and the secular power of the region, the Holy Roman Empire. As Machiavelli writes, quote, The pontiffs acquired greater influence, and the authority of the German emperors was in its wane. All the places of Italy governed themselves with less respect for the prince, so that the mind of the country was divided between the emperor and the church, close quote. Matilda eventually sided with the Pope, giving him all her domains, including Florence. This incurred the wrath of the Holy Roman Empire. Henry IV began insisting that they invade Tuscany. However, Matilda was too crafty to allow that to happen. With the help of Henry IV's ex-wife, named Adelaide, Matilda created a situation where Adelaide could ruin the German emperor's reputation. Adelaide testified to a large church council, including the Pope, on how wicked and unfaithful Henry IV was to her. This was hugely humiliating to Henry IV, and his supporters vanished. This testimony prevented him from invading Italy or pretty much accomplishing anything for the rest of his life. When Pope Urban II called for the First Crusade, French soldiers entered into Italy to serve the Pope. Matilda led them and used them to restore Pope Urban II to his throne in Rome. Obviously, this episode left unresolved tension between the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope. When Henry IV's son, Henry V, died, it caused the investiture controversy of 1075, essentially a debate on whether the secular German rulers of the HRE or the Pope had the authority to appoint bishops and abbots within the empire. On one side were the Ghibellines, the people who supported the secular German government. On the other side were the Guelphs. These were the supporters of the Holy See. They saw the Pope as the ultimate authority. As you can imagine, this rift widened over the years, with the Guelphs ultimately becoming those who opposed German influence in Italy, and the Ghibellines being those who opposed the Pope. The conflict grew especially heated when Frederick Barbarossa, a German prince, came to Italy in order to conquer it. In Florence, the factionalization was particularly fierce. The Guelphs usually included the new money, the merchants and the burghers, while the Ghibellines tended to be the nobles who were often distant relations of those in power in the HRE. As you can see, these political debates hit on other sensitive nerves, such as theology, class, family, the balance between safety and freedom, and liberty versus tyranny. This led to enormous civil strife. As Machiavelli writes, quote, the whole city was corrupted with this division, close quote. Eventually, the Ghibellines had had enough, and the Guelphs were expelled from the city. Many of the Guelphs occupied castles and strongholds in the hilly countryside, and they were gathering armies to prepare for war and retake the city. However, around that time, Barbarossa died. This also killed the hope that Italy would be brought back under German control. Therefore, the nobles of Florence considered that it would be better to effect the reunion of the city than, by keeping her divided, cause her ruin. They therefore introduced the Guelphs to forget their injuries, and in return, the Ghibellines to lay aside their jealousies and receive them with cordiality. Ironically, the Guelphs, upon their return, only increased in power and influence, eventually pushing the Ghibellines out of politics altogether. To ensure that these nobles, or anziani, the ancient ones, could never rule over the city again, in 1293 the Florentines adopted a constitution called the Ordinances of Justice. The Ordinances of Justice barred nobility from political power. It created three chambers of government, the Credenza, a council of 80 citizens, the Buono Omini, 
the good men, a council of twelve citizens, and the council of priors, a council of six men later called the signori. The constitution provided for frequent changes of office to ensure that no group or individual could get control of the state. Political officers served only terms that were two months long. Can you imagine how much better off we'd be in America if politicians served only a couple of months instead of their entire adult lives through to their 80s and 90s? Now, as much as I admire the Florentine government, I do acknowledge it was very weak at first. Machiavelli wrote that, quote, murders and other atrocities were daily committed and the perpetrators escaped unpunished under the protection of the nobility. And so the rulers were impotent and the spurned nobility were now in open rebellion, harboring criminals and fugitives against the government. This resulted in more reforms, such as the establishment of a post called the Gonfalonier of Justice. The Gonfalonier commanded 4,000 soldiers and police. He operated under the direction of the priors, whom he also lived with. Nobles were barred from holding this position. The Florentines also passed a law that allowed for criminals and their accomplices, which would include the nobles, to be doled the same punishment. This greatly strengthened the Florentine people, and it weakened the nobles. The nobles were very vexed by this, and so they attempted to run a civil war. Fortunately, before things got too bloody, some of the people and some of the wiser nobles and priests came together to explain to the nobles that, quote, their loss of power and laws which were made against them had been occasioned by their haughty conduct and the mischievous tendency of their proceedings, and that their nobility did not contribute to win battles and would be found wanting when they came to arms. These pacifists also calmed the populists by telling them, quote, it is not prudent to wish always to have the last blow, that it is an injudicious step to drive men to desperation, for he who is without hope is also without fear, and that they ought not to forget that in the wars the nobility had always done honor to the country, and therefore it was neither wise nor just to pursue them with so much bitterness." I find great wisdom in these words. The elites needed to understand that they could not continue to mo monopolize all the power, depriving the citizens of their voice. At the same time, the citizens needed to understand that taking such bitter revenge that pushes their enemies into a corner can only lead to one outcome, violence. These wise words assuaged the tensions. Both sides laid down their arms. The priors passed some more reforms to preserve the rights of the nobility and ensure that they'd still have a voice. Because of all these reforms, Florentines developed a keen interest in their politics and became a community of civil servants. Among the greatest of these servants was Dante, who was elected to the highest office in the land, the Council of Priors, for a two-month term starting in June 15, 1300. It was then that his life went to pot. You see, by that point, the Florentines had divided even further with the Guelphs splitting into two parties, the Black Guelphs, who supported the Pope's authority over dominions and armies on earth, and the White Guelphs, who were suspicious of the Pope's growing earthly power. They believed that Christ's kingdom was not of this world, and they found it suspect that the Vicar of Christ seemed intent on gathering armies and sacking cities. To counter the Pope's growing power, Dante went down to Rome to negotiate a continued peace and independence for Florence from papal meddling. Once he was gone, however, the papal meddling ensued. The Pope had a French minion, a prince named Charles of Valois, who he charged with leading a mob of black Guelphs to attack the white Guelphs.
during the mob action, the Black Gelf Priors seized control of the government. They accused Dante and the White Gelfs of committing crimes while in office. The crimes were all fabricated, but they ordered Dante to a hearing, which he didn't show up for, and so they sentenced him to death by fire should he ever enter Florence again. The White Gelfs' houses were brought down and their lands were seized. This made a very bleak political situation for Florence. Machiavelli lamented, quote, The city had nothing to fear from the empire and was in condition to meet all the states of Italy with her own forces. The evil, however, which external power could not affect, was brought about by those within, close quote. Machiavelli continues, Neither was the city disturbed with one division alone, but by many. First the enmity between people and the nobility, and then that of the Ghibellines and the Guelphs, and lastly of the white and the black Guelphs. All the citizens were therefore in arms, for many were dissatisfied and wished for a return of the banished. Close quote. Over the next few decades, external observers were disgusted by Florence's political division. Even Emperor Henry VII and the new Pope. In 1334, Pope Benedict XII was so sick of all the politics that he threatened excommunication to anyone who said either Guelph or Ghibelline ever again. Dante never came back to his beloved Florence, instead living in Verona and Ravenna, where he wrote one of the greatest works of literature of all time, The Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy, unlike most of the works of the era, was not written in Latin, but rather the Vulgate, the common tongue of the people specifically his people, the Florentine dialect of Tuscany. Because of this, and because of the significance of this work, modern Italian is actually derived from medieval Florentine. The Divine Comedy is as much an attempt to make sense of Dante's estrangement from his home as it is a spiritual journey to understand God. One of the amazing things about it, contrary to popular belief, he doesn't describe all political adversaries burning in hell and the opposite for all of his allies. Rather, he sees people rather nuanced. People on his side, such as his mentor and even Pope Boniface VIII, were in various circles of the Inferno, recognizing them among the prideful, thieves, sodomites, flatterers, and hypocrites. Of course, he also sees several black Guelph rivals in Inferno, but Dante sees a Guelph and a Ghibelline together, working as friends, ascending in Purgatorio, as well as an old rival that Dante had actually fought on the battlefield he sees in uh, Purgatorio repenting as well. This is an expression of hope for a future reconciliation between the divided parties. Power in Florence eventually consolidated behind the seven guilds after they went through the 1301 to 1307 new code reforms. There was the Guild of Judges and Lawyers, the Guild of Merchants and Cloth Dyers, the Guild of Wool Manufacturers, the Guild of Bankers and Money Changers, the Guild of Silk Weavers and their Merchants, the Guild of Physicians and Pharmacists, and the Guild of Skinners and Furries. <laughs> I mean, Furriers. The guilds cared little for factionalization. They just wanted peace and to make money. And that's just what the people kind of wanted at the same time. These guilds eventually grew to be immensely powerful, becoming the dominant force that selected all of the priors. The bankers and money changers especially grew powerful because they secured a juicy deal with the Pope to run his banking monopolies and become his tax collectors throughout all of Europe. They established bank branches across the continent, and the local gold coin of Florence, called the Florin, became the world's monetary standard. This made Florence very, very, very rich. 
By the 14th century, Florence had become a metropolis of 90,000 people, making it one of the great cities of Europe, standing alongside Paris, Venice, Milan, and Naples. And that is where we'll end our episode today. Next week, we'll discuss Florence through the Renaissance, and we'll dive deep into the lives of some of its most prominent citizens. Thanks for listening today. I think there's a lot to learn from Florence, such as the importance of overcoming political division and the importance of term limits, Republican democracy, and how much it helps to be the mint of the global monetary standard. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share this with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the sources listed in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.